All right, everybody, welcome back from the first part of the holiday season. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving and spent great time with friends and family, took time to relax and just enjoy the time and enjoy the moment. Now we're kind of back to the grind before before Christmas time and flipping the calendar to the new year. So I'm excited to be back here after taking a week off of the podcasting world. And we're going to hit you with an exciting two-part series, two separate episodes in a two-part series. And they're going to be focusing on evidence-based biohacking and more or less biometrics. And that's going to help really uncover what BioLite has been doing this past year as far as being engaged with BioStrap Labs in research study. BioLite was involved in some research. So my company, BioLite, became the first red light therapy company to put their specific devices, their specific products in uh, scientific research. And so at the end of the research, we got some really cool results. Now BioLite is able to provide and advocate for some very special use cases with red light therapy that really haven't been researched or looked at in the photobiomodulation research altogether. And we know that there's over 10,000 research studies. And in this particular one with BioStrap Labs, BioLite got some really, really cool results. So we'll talk about that in the second part of this two-part series. But the first part is going to be with someone who was with BioStrap at that time. He's actually the one that kind of got me reeled into the BioStrap Labs, was really pressing for me in a positive way, pressing for me to have BioLite and its products validated, get some research done, and really put the products to the test. This gentleman is Elias Arjan, and so he is well known in the biohacking world. In his little world, he he gets constantly reached out to about different types of biohacking products, whether it's red light therapy or saunas or different type of wearables. So he always has friends and colleagues and otherwise reaching out to him, asking him, you know, which product is best. And in his mind, he had to go through the research and kind of do his due diligence to find out which company was producing the best products and which ones were just, you know, touting smoke and screens with their marketing. That kind of led him on a path to really want everyone, meaning products and companies, to have their products validated in the space so that the consumer knows what they're buying and what they're purchasing is actually what's being purported. And it's just not a bunch of hype and buildup. Just like the supplement industry, which is not regulated, the biohacking industry is kind of the wild, wild west in the sense that it's not really regulated. So as a consumer, you really do have to do your due diligence. So that was a, that was a long-winded way of saying that's kind of what to expect with these two episodes is we're going to dig deep into why it's important for biohacking companies and products to be validated and to have some evidence backing them. And so Elias is really going to speak upon that in part one, which is this episode today. And he has a very good compass and direction that he sees the biohacking field in which direction it kind of needs to go. So he'll touch on that. And he'll also superficially talk about BioLite and the BioStrap Labs study, but that's where part two comes into play. We're going to pull the scientist, the guy that looks at all the numbers and the data and crunches those to come up with 
what did the study show? You know, did we get any statistically significant results? Did we really get any positive results from the study? So his name is Kevin Longoria, and he's going to be in part two of this two-part series. And Kevin is the chief science officer at Biostrap. And so he was working with us with Biolite and Elias at Biostrap Labs when we were conducting that study this past summer. So again, part one is going to be kind of a nice global conversation about the biohacking world and kind of introducing some critical thinking, combating some misinformation and going into wearables because that's Elias's specialty as well. So getting into wearables and biometrics. And then in part two, Kevin is going to really dig into the importance of biometrics and why they're important, especially heart rate variability. And then we'll dig really deep into the results and what came from that Biostrap lab study with BioLite. So sit back, enjoy part one of this two-part series, learn lots and enjoy. Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. On this week's episode, we have Elias Arjan, who is the CEO of Business Brain, which is a strategic consulting firm that serves brands in the health, fitness, and biotech industries. As the executive producer of Bioscience LA TV, Elias is working to connect the ecosystem of bioscience companies in LA County and beyond. Elias is also a sought-after educator and speaker on wearable technology, biometric science, and wellness optimization, as well as the former senior vice president of Biostrap, which is a wearable company. Elias has been featured in the LA Magazine, NBC's California Live, LA Business Journal, and multiple podcasts, including this one. Elias... And I met earlier this year and this past summer while he was on his motorcycle ride, he made a trip up (laughs) to see me in Montana for a little hyperbaric chamber action. So it was good to see him and meet him in person. Uh, But regardless, Elias, welcome to the Red Light Report. Glad to have you here. Great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, So just quickly, Elias, give us a background other than what I just told the audience as far as how you got into the space, into the biohacking world and really how you've become this educator. And like we talked about before the recording, you're almost trying to bridge this gap of the biohacking world and the medical world where you want to validate tools being used in the biohacking world that really don't have that yet or are on their way to having it, but don't quite have it yet. So just give us your background. So I often call myself a lifelong biohacker. Obviously, the term biohacker didn't exist, you know, when I was in college, uh, when I really got into health and fitness and human kinetics and biology. And so what happened was I was my quick story. You know, I was that overweight kid in high school who couldn't do a single push up, sort of had a uh, epiphany moment where I decided to turn my life around became very devoted to athletics and uh, and then eventually biology, became a personal trainer, went to college on like human kinetics, human performance, uh, athletics, uh, started doing triathlons. And then while I was working as a personal trainer, and this is what I mean about the biohacking, because for me, biohacking is very much about like that experimentation, you know? So it's like, it's that N equals one idea. So I don't think, you know, just because you do one or two things. You're a biohacker. A biohacker is the standard of science, right? Which is come up with a hypothesis, 
do something to test your hypothesis. And then at the end, you have to see if your hypothesis is correct and not just, you know, confirming your own biases. So that idea of experimentation was something that I got very interested in with my own health, doing my own testing. So that's why I say I've been biohacking for a long time, because I would be like, oh, somebody would say, hey, there's this new protocol. Okay, this new fitness routine. So I would try it. And then as a personal trainer, I would always get feedback from my clients. Hey, I just saw this new diet. I saw this new supplement. I saw this new product. There's this new workout machine that was just invented. So I kept getting people giving me experiments, experiments to conduct, you know, Hey, is this any good? Is this any good? And so I've been doing that my entire life, even when I wasn't in the biohacking space or even in the health industry, I've been in different industries before in the performing arts. I've, I've experimented with a lot of different things, but now, you know, I really focus all of my attention. You mentioned hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Like I came to your place. That was one of the first times I did a soft hyperbaric chamber. I ended up doing an arrangement with a company where I had a soft hyperbaric oxygen chamber in my house for about almost three months where I could do a lot of experimentation of how did it impact me? When was it impactful? So I kind of conduct this experimentation for myself. And then when I was with Biostrap, you know, I said, we really need to do this for more biohacking companies because the problem is, is that there's just not enough data being gathered and that's because, you know, and it, it makes sense, like a small biohacking company, even a, even a moderately sized biohacking company can afford a double blind placebo controlled clinical study with a, a CRO. It's just, it's like a million dollars. I mean, you're not going to do that unless you kind of have to submit something to the FDA, right? So you're not going to go down that path. So we don't really have an intermediate phase. We have all of the wellness brands in one pile, and then we have medical grade technology in another pile that has completely different rules. And so I've been trying to understand how do we create a, a new category? And so, yeah, that, that can lead us kind of into our one of our main topics of conversation is kind of your viewpoint and your, your mission really with, with bringing validation to various products in, in the biohacking realm. Walk us through what that means to you and why people should care about that. Because I guess in a nutshell, Right now, biohacking is relatively in its infancy, shall we say. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. There's a lot of exciting new products out there. And I guess to your point, that's that's fun and exciting. And people are getting great results, you know, health, wellness, longevity, all that good stuff. But at some point, there needs to be validation behind these products so so that the consumer can make a, a better educated decision on on what they're purchasing, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think right now, so I that's why I've sort of even changed my languaging. I refer to myself and what I do as an evidence-based biohacker as opposed to just the regular biohacker, because I think that term has become very diluted, I guess is the best way to put it now that it's become popular. And so, yeah, I think people deserve proof. I mean, I think it's really just that simple. And ultimately, I again, like I said, I know not every company has to do double-blind placebo-controlled study. But at the same time, I mean, if you're going to be offering a, a product that is supposed to, you know, people that are people that are ingesting or people are, you know, slathering all over their bodies or whatever they're doing with it, you know, especially if you have a so-called, you know, proprietary formula, uh, I think you owe the consumers some type of validation. And it, you know, you see even some some companies trying to do this at a small scale. You know, I see people showing. Instagram photos of like, here's what our customer's aura ring 
changes were for their for our sleep product or, or what have you. And that's the thing too, is, is it's now in the hands of individuals that they can actually do this testing because of wearable tech. And you can kind of scale that a little bit, you know, it is possible. So, so again, like that's what, that's what we did it when I was with Biostrap. That's why we, we, you know, I really helped sort of create a division called Biostrap Labs to study, you know, with human biometrics, you know, using a wearable tech, how do these, these interventions or biohacking technologies impact the human physiology? And you see some companies going through the due diligence. I mean, another example of that is maybe Neurohacker. If you're familiar with them, they're a supplement company and they do the science. They they go and not only do they do the science around each individual piece of their formula, but because they're they build formulations. So what they do is they take individual supplemental products that have already been validated in various trials or what have you, but then they put them into their own proprietary formula and then they test that formula and then they release it onto the market. So you know, that's a company that I have respect for because they're doing the science. But again, that's rare. I mean, you can't find a lot of supplement companies I could say that about. Before we dive into Biostrap Labs, perhaps, because you've alluded to this a couple of times where doing a randomized double-blind controlled trial gets pretty darn expensive if you're doing it through, you know, like a university or, or the standard way. So what are other ways to validate? I guess you already said, you know, using something like a wearable but if you want something that's a little more something you can sink your teeth into um, outside of Bioshop Labs, of course, what else could a person or a company do to validate that their product is doing what they're purporting it to do? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a very good question because there really aren't a lot of options. A lot of times you'd be surprised what you may be able to get done with those universities. But the challenge there is you have to find a graduate student that is interested in exactly what you're doing. So it's like if you're saying... For example, you know, you have a product BioLite, you have to find a graduate student at a university that wants to see how BioLite affects maybe a specific skin condition, right? So then they're doing research on that skin condition. So I thought about this. It would be great to have some type of brokerage community where you could kind of connect graduate students with companies. And, and so if someone's listening to this and you have interest in that, I don't need to own it. You go ahead and build it. I think it'd be very cool. There are limited systems for this right now. And I think it's because we have a lot of things moving very fast, right? We're, we're in this state of... Uh, you know, the information age has rapidly become information, misinformation, over-information. And so we have this conflux of all these things happening. So there isn't really a lot of very specific pathways to answer your question. Like I said, even those companies doing anecdotal analysis, there was a company I saw that was recruiting people if they just asking if they had an aura and if they'd be willing to share data. There are companies that are going through the effort to do this. And then some companies do build their technology off of existing science, right? So like, I mean, you have a red light therapy company has a lot of studies on red light therapy. I just think it's really important that the company does that extra step like you did and validate their exact product. So you have the body of red light therapy literature, and then you have, does this product actually fit into that literature? And then that's, that's where you kind of got to prove it. You know, and so again, I mean, that's something that I'm working on as well. So if people are really interested, you can also reach out to me directly and I can help uh, help them find some some pathways. So as far as the anecdotal evidence, like you said, with the aura ring, if, if someone's like showing off the readiness score because they just took like some CBD the night before or they right. whatever, it's obviously better than nothing. But is that validation or 
I guess you get enough anecdotal evidence it becomes a little stronger over time, correct? Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, you again, this is the the whole principle of biohacking is an N equals one. And so a CBD is a great example because I've personally tested multiple CBD products and many of them had zero effect that I could discern either subjectively or objectively with my wearable. And so the problem is, is you could still say this is CBD product had a great impact for X number of people. You go buy it, you start using it. It's not affecting you. And that's not because the product is bad. That's because the product in your physiology is don't sync up in the right way. And so this is where at the end of the day, there is no, this is again, why I like the term biohacking, because you have to own the experimentation yourself at the end of the day. So, I mean, this is true of pharmaceutical drugs too. Like a lot of people don't realize this, but I mean, when a pharmaceutical drug is approved, less than half the people could have had a positive impact from that drug. There could have been 30% of the people who participated in the trial who had actually negative consequences from that pharmaceutical drug. So, so we, people have to understand where the bar is as well, which there's not a lot of understanding of that. People don't understand that the bar isn't that when you're taking a pharmaceutical drug that's been approved and that's been double-blind placebo-controlled clinical study, people have to understand that doesn't mean 90% of the people got a good impact from that drug. It just means that you know probably close to half then some people had no effect. And then some people might even have negative effects, but the drug will still be passed. And that's not because big pharma is just a scam because a lot of people throw that out as like a blanket term, but that's just because that's, that's how science is. Not everything is going to work for everybody. And that's how human health is. Yeah. The body's so complex. And that's like you said, N equals one. So just because someone's, and we talked about this before the whole water market. I mean, that can be a sticky wicket too, because you have these great marketing, um, whether it's about alkaline water, hydrogen rich, and we were just talking about deuterium depleted. And on the face, the science and the marketing sounds great. But how do you really know what it's doing internally, especially from person to person, like your own physiology? How's it going to affect you? And some of these things are be even hard for you know, hospitals to measure, right? Like how does the alkaline, when alkaline water hits the acidity of the stomach, like what are you going to do? Put a whole tube down the person, everybody's stomach and see what's going to happen at that chemical reaction at that moment. You're going to have to like do all this blood work. I mean, a lot of this type of research that you would take to really get good data would be quite invasive. You know, like people do not want to be <laughs> tubed and, you know, IV'd and everything just to test a, a health tech piece of health technology, right? So right. a lot of the data is going to be gathered by, to some degree, a product going out into the market, a certain amount of people testing it, doing some of their own analysis, and then providing feedback. And the challenge here is usually the only feedback you see online tends to be more negative than positive. So you know, people will complain about a product more often than they'll praise it. You know, if you're listening to this and you have a product you really love and you really think the company is doing a good job, let the world know if you can, you know, because it's, it's, it's hard to get those positive anecdotal reports That's for companies, point. for yeah. brands. It's hard for them to get them. Like I work with a lot of them and it's like, you have to go through a lot of work to get somebody to say when they're really happy, they'll, they'll maybe tell you if you see them at a conference, oh, I love you guys. I love your product. <laughs> I'm guilty of this too. Like there's some products I love that I realize oh, I have to go, you know, put something on the app store saying, Hey, I really love this app. When you're mad or angry, that's much more of a 
um, motivator motion that's going to motivate you to do something like that right so that that kind of makes sense so that kind of beckons the question this whole biohacking and knowing whether or not it's working for your body that beckons the question of the placebo effect because let's say you buy a product and you're just so confident in the science and you're so confident that it's going to work for you regardless if it does physiologically what if it does on a placebo effect level then it might not show up in the bio strap it might not show up in the aura ring but like you say subjectively you feel better or on the flip side this is kind of the counterpart to that what if you know, you're using your uh, wearable, let's use BioStrap, for example, and you wake up and you feel really, really good. It's not a readiness score. It's a recovery score. Recovery score. What if that's like just in the tank? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you yeah. feel great though, but it's in the tank. So how do you... The objective and the subjective don't, yeah. don't, don't correlate. Right. So right. I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. A, you get the placebo effect, even though it's not doing anything. And then B, what if subjectively you feel good or you feel bad and then your wearable is saying the opposite and that can have the opposite placebo effect on you, if you will. How does that kind of work itself out? Really very, very valid points. And I'll take that as a two-part question. I'll take it in two Uh, parts. So part one on the placebo effect. Now, probably the placebo effect might be one of the most potent and powerful aspects of being human. The fact that our mind can essentially tell our body what to believe, so to speak. And if you listen to people like uh, Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton, they would say that who cares if it's a placebo effect, right? Because ultimately, there is some evidence that if I believe hard enough that I ingest this pill, and you can give me a sugar pill, doesn't even have to have any active compound, but I believe enough that this sugar pill is going to reduce a metabolic reaction in my body or impact a reaction in my body, that belief in my mind could actually tell my body, well, you better go do this thing, right? You better go and and make this happen. You know, so the question becomes then for the people who take that sugar pill and then get the placebo effect or maybe even change something, does that mean they have a better belief? They have stronger beliefs? Do they believe more? Is there a threshold of belief to physiological change like that, I don't think anybody quite knows. I guess the short answer there is that we should never really discount the placebo effect. I think the challenge there is we shouldn't be dependent on it, right? Would be what I would say. So it's 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 there, account for it, but don't depend on it. You shouldn't be giving people sugar pills and saying it's going to lower their insulin. I mean, that's that's just bad practice. So I guess that's the first part. So so placebo will always be there. It's part of being human. It's okay to have, but it's just like all our other cognitive biases and all these other things that impact how we think and live, and we should be aware of them. So the second part there is what about when the objective and the subjective don't correlate to each other, right? So you you got a really bad recovery score, but you feel great and you're kind of like, well, I want to go do CrossFit today. You know, Who do you listen to? Do you listen to your wearable? Do you listen to your body? I guess I'm a bit old school. I remember working out well before any wearable technology existed. So I think I would, to some degree, listen to my body if I had to make that absolute decision. But I notice even myself, I do sometimes have that happen. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does sometimes happen where I feel really good. I get a, a recovery score below how I feel. For me, at least, what I'll do is I'll probably meet it midway. Even though I feel really good, maybe I'm not going to push myself that hard because there's probably something in my body that's saying, don't hit the gas that hard today. And so I'll I'll kind of factor that in. 
And I think that's true. I think that's true for where wearables are right now, because I think people have a misunderstanding of how new that technology really is and how much of it is being figured out in real time with all of us, you know, being the uh, explorers of this new domain. Well, that's probably a good segue into wearables because that's something you're extremely knowledgeable about. And when you're visiting up here in Montana, you you went into some depth about the differences between different wearables and how they're different with the algorithms or the type of light they're using to collect data and so forth. So it'd be great, Elias, if you could just kind of break that down, the differentiation between, you know, let's say BioStrap and Aura Ring and Fitbit, and you mentioned a Garmin, like what are the differentiating factors between each one? Let's start with that question. Sure. So in the same way I talked about medical grade and the wellness space is very wide, right? So the wellness space is $1.4 trillion and it's like unregulated. So it's a very big, complicated space with a lot of things happening. And then of course we have contrasting the wellness space. We have the medical industry where everything has to be vetted and has to be cleared and there's compliance and regulatory uh, requirements. So wearables are in a similar space. You have consumer wearables which right now is probably the vast majority of what people are familiar with. But then, of course, you have medical-grade wearables, which are a relatively small number of, right now, fairly expensive devices that are typically used by physicians or hospitals, and you have to get prescribed. And, and they at this point, they tend to be more invasive. You know, They tend to be implanted in the body or they tend to be like bile stickers, you know, like you might go to some, some people for cardiology may go and get like a sticker put on their chest and they're just told to wear it for two weeks and they wear it. The doctor takes it off after two weeks and downloads the data, but the, 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 they'll make medical decisions off of that data, trying to understand what is your, you know, what, what's your cardiovascular condition, you know, and all these different uh, parameters that they're measuring. And still relatively small. Uh, medical adoption of wearable technology has been quite slow. The pandemic basically was a kick in the, in the you know what, I don't know, kick in something <laughs> around the medical space where they had to start looking at why are we not using wearables more? Because we can't bring people into the hospital. We can't bring them into the lab. People are at home. We could be gathering health data, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. So the medical wearable space is small. And while they've been moving very slowly, the consumer wearable space has exploded, right? So probably almost everybody you talk to has, you know, I mean, within a certain economic range, has probably tried or bought at least one type of wearable device, right? Whether it's a $100 knockoff or $75 knockoff, or whether they're wearing like an $800 Garmin because they're like a hardcore triathlete. What people need to understand is, there's not really a formula yet that's been made, but it kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve with your wearable, right? And and why you want one in the first place. You use the example of Garmin. I just said like a triathlete. So if you're an outdoor adventure athlete who does triathlons and long hikes, you may need that really expensive Garmin. So you don't need to take your phone. You can have a watch and you can go hike into the mountains and you can track all of your data. You can track your trail running. You can do all of these things. But if you're not doing that, there's no reason for you to buy that $800 garment unless you want the status, right? Of like, hey, I got this really cool, expensive thing. If we want to go down that list, you know, we could name all of the different companies and the different products and where they all fit in because it's, it's, it's a kind of complicated space there. Uh, and there's a lot of different players. What about the way 
they measure or collect the data, like the algorithms. That's different from company to company yes. perhaps as well, right? And that can dictate its accuracy or lack thereof. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's typically my shorthand answer to that. I, I don't want this to sound flippant, but to some degree, it's like a little bit of you get what you pay for. You know, so if you're going to buy the knockoff right now, the the market's being flooded with ads saying, you know, they they sell something that looks like an Apple Watch for like seventy five bucks because it's got a screen and a, it's like a knockoff from China, mass produced, and and it's got a little sensor, a little green light sensor in there because you can mass produce green light sensors very cost effectively. And they, the screens now, the, the screen technology has come down in price. So you can produce something that looks like a really good wearable for really cheap. But as you said, the algorithm, so you could have the sensor, you could have the watch face, but the algorithm is what's calculating that biometric science technology. And so it doesn't matter if you have a, if you have a cheap knockoff sensor and you have a pretty looking screen, if you don't have good science and good technology and good algorithms behind all of that, you're literally just dealing with a piece of junk. So you bought a $75 complete piece of junk. And and the danger here, and this is the thing that people don't realize, you make health decisions off that. That's not like a knockoff Game Boy or something, you know, or like a video game thing. Like you just play with it. And who cares if it's the cheaper version than the premium one? Who cares? But if you decide to say, oh, I'm going to work out based on this, or some people are self-diagnosing things like cardiovascular conditions, like arrhythmias off of these cheap devices. And that's very dangerous, right? The short answer is you get what you pay for. And if you want, we can really go down the path. I think you want me to go down the path of like the different types of light sensors and how all of those work. If you want, we can go there. Yeah, let's go there. Because I'm really curious, just what you talked about when you were here, how the different types of light sensors can also dictate the accuracy. So if you don't mind going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, sure. So so right now, um, you know, the main types of sensors we see on the market, as I mentioned, the mass produced green light spectrum sensors, and that's what's primarily used in consumer wearables right up until about COVID actually. And the green light measures at the superficial level of the skin, penetrates a little bit beyond the, the dermis tissue of the skin, and is taking a reading of the blood flow at the level of the capillaries, which is closer to that skin area, taking that information, running it through its algorithms and from the sensor and and producing some reporting. But medical grade sensors traditionally have been red light sensors that penetrates into the skin 10 times deeper. And now you can get it from the arterioles or from the actual artery, whether it's in the finger like an aura or in the wrist like a biostrap. You can get it from the actual artery and that red light sensor will get that info. But they both have a trade-off. Red light, much more accurate, better quality data, but it's impacted by light and movement. So that's why if you go for a run, you're not going to get any data from your biostrap or your aura. So you kind of need that green light Garmin sensor or Apple Watch sensor to get that active heart rate data, or you put on an EKG chest strap. It's completely different. That's not optical sensing. That's a different technology where it's actually reading the electrical signal off your chest strap. So, but people don't like wearing that, right? So if you like wearing a chest strap and you're okay with an EKG chest strap, that's probably going to be some of the best data you're going to get for your heart rate. So people are like hardcore will, you know, attach that chest strap to their wearable. And just to finish this off, where things are going now 
if you look, you notice that the Apple Watch and Fitbit now released multi-sensor technology. So now they, because again, you couldn't get SPO2 uh, with anything other than red light. So you, people are putting those fingertip oximeters. So during COVID, pretty much everybody in the world, I think, who could get access bought a pulse ox because they were selling them like as fast as they could produce them in China, they were being sold. That pulse ox is a red light sensor you put in your fingertip. Now they're putting that into the wearables to get the SPO2. So the Fitbit and the Apple Watch added it at the beginning of this year. Whoop 4.0 just added SPO2. So you'll see that all the companies now are pulling in the red light and the green light technology so that they can try to get everything. And that's kind of where the industry is going. Just, just to finish this thought though, just keep in mind, companies like Biostrap and Aura that have been doing red light technology for years, they really know how to use that red light data. Right now at this point, at least I'm suspicious of the other companies, how well they're using the red light data, how good are their algorithms for it, Maybe they're great. I don't know. I haven't dove into it yet, but I just think it's an interesting thing to note. Yeah, that's a good point. Why couldn't you use, let's say, near infrared light? Like, is there a point of going deeper than the red light to collect data, or do you just want to get to the arterials and that's kind of where you're as deep as you want to go as far as a wearable? Yeah, I think I think the red lights, the red light that they have right now, uh, the way it reads it reads deep enough and like into the body that you're getting the signal you want i think actually the next phase is not going to be optical sensing the next phase is actually molecular sensing so what they're going to do which is astounding is that you will have the impact of like a continuous glucose monitor without piercing the skin so i don't know if everybody knows this but when you get those continuous glucose monitors people put in their arm or on their abdomen there's a little intracellular nodule that has to pierce the skin and then read the cellular tissue to get the information. They're, they're building now wearables that can just sit on your wrist and pull that data just for, off molecular sensing. And, and apparently they're working longer term to be even getting things like blood pressure and all of the current metrics just off of, without an optical sensor, off a molecular sensor on the wrist. So that, so I don't think they'll go into more optical technology. I think molecular sensing technology will be the next phase. So what does a molecular sensor look like then? For all intents and purposes, it will look like everything we have now. It will just look like our existing wearable. It will just be, instead of shining light into the body, it will be kind of like, think of it like a really powerful sniffer. Like, I don't know if you've heard, like they have dogs that can like smell cancer, but they even had found dogs that could smell COVID. So it's almost think of that as like uh, the best bloodhound you've ever imagined is AI on your wrist, maybe as, as, a, as a metaphor. That's pretty wild. So what type of frequency is it using if it's not using light? Somehow, and again, I, I actually have been trying to actually do some of the research and understanding. There seems to be a couple different works being patented right now. Uh, I think Apple just purchased a company. They released a patent and then Apple bought them. <laughs> and I think Apple's doing that, like looking as soon as a patent comes up, they're gobbling up the company who develops a molecular patent to maybe measure like a single parameter. So so that's kind of the, the next level of playing that's being done. And so there's a number of different ways they're trying to do this. And uh, it's hard to even keep up because there's so many different approaches to this problem. I think one company I saw did say they released 
what they do what they do plan to release i think at the beginning of next year and again a lot of times they they announce this but they don't make the date they just announce it so they can be in, like the first to announce it and then they they actually really one company i saw said they do have a wrist worn continuous glucose monitor they mm. plan to release before the uh, before the middle of next year i forget the name of the company but it was on the on a wearable technology site this podcast interview was brought to you by the longev revive cream if you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horneck, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions, and not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com. That's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com. Or you can also find it on biolite.shop. That's biolite.shop. That's wild. So like you were saying, I think you mentioned this when you were in Montana. Keep referring to that, but we had a great conversation with you. <laughs> it's getting to the point where the wearable is going to be able to diagnose a health condition. I think you were saying maybe a couple of weeks into advance. So like, let's say you're you're going down the path of getting a heart attack or some sort of something like that. The wearable yeah, is going to be able to tell you it's going to happen prior to it happening. So then you can be more proactive about it at that point, correct? Yes. I, in fact, I think where we should actually go is to long-term prevention analysis. So where we could go is we could say, look at somebody, because right now metabolic syndrome is rampant in, in, in this country. And insulin resistance is something that you can see that happening in the body two years in advance, I believe. Uh, and don't quote me on that of being completely scientifically accurate, but I know it's a significant it's a significant decline that goes into type 2 diabetes, for example. So you could look upstream of that and instead of saying, because right now, what do we do? You know, We go into the doctor once a year, we get all our vitals and blood work done and they go, oh, you're okay, you're good enough, you're in the range and then they send you home. You do that again and again and again for years, and then they come in, oh, you're out of the range, you have a disease, here's your treatment plan. Well, what? That's, that, that's the dumbest way to manage health. Like, you know, it, I couldn't imagine a dumber way to manage health, I'm sorry to say. What we should do is be like, oh, you know, in the last year since you came in here, we're noticing a couple of changes that although they're still in normative ranges or maybe not normative for you, or maybe you're in a decline state. So let's take, let's look at that. How do we start to make sure that, you know, these markers are improving? And I think that's where 
biohacking comes in, so to speak. It's like, you got to take ownership of that yourself, unless you're working with somebody who's like a functional medicine doctor or naturopath or osteopaths. You have specialists now who are working in preventative medicine, basically. But I think wearables have a very significant role in this because the wearable could, could give you that information as a consumer in a way that just isn't possible today. Well, in the backtrack about your point of how the system is put together, the ranges themselves, you could question whether or not those are accurate. Because like you're saying, as as the country gets sicker and sicker, right. those ranges are going to get worse and worse, relatively speaking, because the bar keeps getting set lower and lower, right? So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know testosterone levels for men, like the expectation of male yeah, testosterone levels has so plummeted in the last 20 years. Like like the, the, the most testosterone-rich dude today would qualify as like extremely low in the 1970s relative to the population. So because of all the chemicals, a lot of people blame that on the plastics, you know, the BPA and what have you in the plastics have, have destroyed that. Same thing with like male sperm counts. Uh, I think a lot of women's hormonal levels. I mean, all of these things. Yeah, the nor- I think it's actually a philosopher, Krishnamurti, who said it is no judgment of health to be considered normal in a very sick society. You know, I think he actually talked about sanity Actually, it is no judgment of, of sanity to be considered normal in a very sick society. But I would say, you know, I'm converting that to health, right? So just because you're in the normative range for your blood pressure, like maybe that's not good. Probably not in this country. <laughs> yeah. Like, look who you're comparing yourself to, right? You're comparing yourself to a group of elite, elite athletes. You're comparing yourself to, right. you know, sedentary, obese individuals. Like, what's your peer group? Right. Well, yeah, I appreciate you uh, sharing your information on the wearables because I think that's great for people to know. And clearly, I mean, this is a rhetorical question, but if you're a biohacker or if you're someone interested in being proactive with your health outside of the allopathic system, people should be using some type of wearable to be tracking their health. Like that's a no-brainer at this point, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll tell you what, for anybody who's like, well, I don't even know if I want to do this. Uh, What does all this mean? You know, I'll tell you, I have no affiliation with these guys, but there's uh, there's an app called HRV for training that uses the sensor on your phone, right? I think it's like less than 10 bucks a year. And so you literally can take an HRV measurement off your finger you know, so there's really no excuse to at least be gathering some data and looking at that. And that that HRV for training will give you a type of like recovery score for the day. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this, to be quite honest, because a spot check of HRV and, and maybe let's, maybe we should end on the wearables this. But here's one thing I just want to mention. So a lot of wearables don't give you a recovery score. So Garmin has something called a body battery that's based on HRV. Aura has a readiness score, Biostrap has a recovery score, Whoop has a strain score. So all these wearables are doing these slightly different ways. And there's apps that you can add to the Apple Watch and use the Apple Watch to give you data. So the Apple Watch becomes the data acquisition product. And then you need another app to like look at sleep and HRV and all of these other things. And then there's a whole business, a whole industry being built around that. But all of them are doing it slightly differently. So some companies will take a single measurement of your nighttime sleep, or maybe they'll take five measurements of your nocturnal sleep and then aggregate that measurement, use an algorithm, and then infer your recovery or readiness score from those data points. 
a lot of people, like I just mentioned, you know, you can do something HRV for training or uh, elite HRV, and they'll take you just take a fingertip reading once a day, and they will infer a recovery score. But everybody who understands anything about data science will know the more data points, the better. Right. And that's one of the reasons that's why I worked for Biostrap. That's why I still use Biostrap as my favorite device because Biostrap is the only one that's taking continuous measurements as frequently as it does every two minutes for an entire night. And then my recovery score becomes an aggregation of all of those measurements. It's not two or three or four or one, it's a whole, it's like dozens of readings aggregated. And so people just need to understand just because a wearable reports a metric you don't know what's going on inside the black box. You know, before we run out of wearable conversation, I think it's a really important point that people need to know. So just because it reports a data point doesn't mean it's correct, doesn't mean it's accurate. And when you talked about people saying like, I don't feel like this is the score that's right, a lot of times that's why, because the way the wearable is calculating that score is maybe not right for their physiology. And as a consumer, because I'm sure obviously this isn't just uh, in the wearable sphere, as a consumer, how do you cut through the marketing or cut through this, that, and the other to determine like who, who's going to know that some novice or someone new to the biohacking or health and wellness, they just want something to, because it's a New Year's resolution and they just want to start the year right. How are they going to know which device to choose? Because I don't think that type of information is readily available. And I think to your point, that's what you're trying to yes. kind of, you know, head the biohacking world towards is validation. I'm going to answer that in two parts. First, I'd like to talk about what the things you do want to look for. Yeah. And then second, let's talk about some of the red flags that come up when I, when I land, because a lot of times people will send me, my friends will send me, have you heard about, like I said, back to my personal training day, have you heard about this new product? And then I'll see a couple of these red flags and I'll just immediately reply. I'd be like, there's some red flags here. I, I wouldn't go near this thing. So first, obviously the even though there isn't going to be double-blind placebo-controlled studies, there are a small amount, very very small, but companies that do go for third-party independent testing. So they take their product, they send it to another place to be tested. That's something, if they have that and they have proof that they had third-party testing by some reputable agency, university, group, that would be sort of the ideal scenario. Hard to find, but if you see that, that's usually a very good sign. When it comes to things like supplements, even though the supplement may not be FDA approved, it could be produced in an FDA approved lab or some type of certified lab. That's another good sign because that means at least the facility where it's being produced isn't like some guy's garage where he's like pouring things into a beaker under unhygienic conditions, right? Because you literally don't know. You literally don't know what you're getting with these formulations. Something else to, on that note that will shock people is they did do a large study, a consumer study, where they went and grabbed a bunch of supplements from like Walgreens. And more than half the supplements didn't even contain the ingredients that they said they did. So like the vitamin D didn't have vitamin D. That's bad. Uh, yeah, it was. it's really bad. So just because it's sold in a regular grocery store or a, you know, a Walgreens or a CVS doesn't mean that you're getting a good quality product, I hate to say. You know, there are some premium brands that are carried by like physicians and they're a lot more expensive. So people will look at that product on 
Amazon and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to get a, a vitamin D and K dropper. And then the way the algorithms even work, Amazon will show you like that one, like it's like a $50 bottle and they'll show you another tincture for 20 bucks. And the average consumer will just click the $20 one. So again, I'll come back to what I said earlier. You know, you do you don't always have to pay more, but I think this other term is right. If you think being healthy is expensive, try being sick, right? Try having cancer, find out how expensive that is. Spend the money on your health if you can. Look for things that are third-party validated. Don't buy the cheapest product just because it's it's there. Look for things that are maybe produced or certified or some type of regulatory relationship if possible. And also too, this ties into the red flags that I'll cover in a minute, is, is if it is a new or novel concept, maybe you're not a scientist, but really just do your own sort of sniff test. Because a lot of times, if the jargon sounds really complicated and they're throwing in all of this crazy stuff, and you're just like, I don't understand what this thing is supposed to do or how it works, be skeptical. Like you deserve to be skeptical. And, and that's the thing I always look for, especially when it comes to like biohacking tech. I go, what's the mechanism of activation? I always do that. When I'm at a conference, right? Somebody goes, oh, yeah, we got this piece of tech. It does this, that, the other thing. Was I go, okay, well, what's the exact mechanism of activation? How does it achieve that in the body? And if they can't explain a single biological phenomena that exists in the body that is impacting, I walk away. Because that should be a really basic question, Right. Is it affecting me at the level of the mitochondria? Is it affecting a cellular membrane? Is it affecting glycogen response? Or like, what is it doing? There's, there's got to be a metabolic system. And as soon as they go, well, and this is the red flag, the big red flag that I see waving in the air there, well, it's the quantum, it's happening at the quantum level. At that point, they've lost me. I'm done. Like, if that's your best description, I, I, I'm sorry, but like, that's not, right. it's a cop-out answer. Like everything that doesn't fall into some other criteria is happening now at the quantum level. Like that's become the universal cop-out and into some crazy stuff out there. I mean, I hate to say it. I'll give you one that I, I don't want to attack people with, but because I know there's people maybe do this business, but you know, the little stickers, they say that putting your phones and block your EMFs, right? So EMF blocking technology. So, Okay. Let's think about what EMFs are. It's a, it's a wave, right? Going through space. We can't see it, but it's a wave that's just pervasive. It's through everything. It's like an ocean, right? An ocean of EMFs. So if I walk out into the ocean as an individual and stand in the ocean and a wave comes towards me and I put a little sticker in front of me, does it block the wave? Yes or no? If Obvious answer, right? Company says it does, it must, right? <laughs> But obvious answer, right? I put this little circular sticker between me and the ocean. What does the ocean do? It just goes around the this it just goes around that sticker and I get hit by the wave, right? Because a little sticker can't block a wave. Like somebody explain to me how that works. I if you have a valid explanation, because the only way you can counteract a wave is an equal and opposite wavelength. So that somebody explain to me how a little round sticker like this stops the EMF wave and its tracks. Like I would love for some, if someone's listening to this and you have a valid scientific reasoning about how that works, I would love to know it. But I just don't see how it's possible. There's yeah. no laws of physics that that explain that to me. So if you want to block EMFs, you can surround yourself. Like you could you can put a Faraday cage. You can put a right. there's bags you can put around your phone. There's there's even cages you can put around your 
microwave. And okay, that makes sense. You encase the wave in something that the wave cannot penetrate. That's physics. I agree with that. But the sticker, I don't, does, doesn't work for me. So just use some of your common sense, I guess, and be skeptical first. Don't just because your friend told you it's there, don't be naive. And just because, oh, my friend told me it worked or it worked for him or her, that, that's good science. Good science is supposed to be you're skeptical first, you accept, you know, after testing. And so that's kind of, I think, the way I would think about it now. And this isn't who I always was. I used to be that naive person who wanted to believe everything. As I've aged, I guess, I've, I've had so much snake oil that I've experienced that I have to start from a place of skepticism now. Sure, sure. And with with those thoughts, I mean, that's a good segue into Biostrap Labs because now, which you're not a part of anymore, but part of your mission, it seems like, is to to move biohacking into a, a validated or products into a validated sphere so people can have more confidence when they're purchasing something or have at least you know, something more to go off of. And right. so give us a little breakdown because you, you worked for Biostrap Labs for how long? Uh, I mean, basically, I kind of helped uh, essentially create that division. Yeah. So so I was with Biostrap for uh, almost two and a half years. Uh, the Biostrap Labs came out of my own experimentation with, I wanted to get a product that I could validate myself and my biohacks. And then the biohacks in my community, because I was running a community here in LA, and I wanted a way that I could test things and tell people to test things to prove it to them. My attitude was don't guess, assess is one of the terms that's been thrown out. And even for individuals, right? So like I said, you know, you want to see a piece of technology. It works for you. Get a bow strap, test it for yourself. You can prove it to yourself whether it works or not. You know, make sure you're spending the money in the right place. And then what I realized when I was talking to the bow strap science team and the founders, I was like, well, and the technical team, I was like, well, could we scale that idea? of what I'm doing as an N equals one and do it with like a larger group with a product, right? And so Biostrap Labs was born from that idea. So what kind of products or companies have gone through that? Um, well, our first major one was was the Theragun uh, by Therabody, which obviously they've grown a lot since we did that study. And I would like to be so bold as to say, I hope we, I think we had a small part in that. They did a lot of advertising with the Bastrap Labs study that showed it impacted sleep because they had a belief. I had a hypothesis, right? It's good science. They have a good science science team. The hypothesis was that, that, that Theragun was impacting sleep, but they didn't know how exactly. So we did the study. We got recruited 70 individuals, or I think 80 individuals, and 73 completed the study. Uh, we had 90% compliance rate. And then at the end, we saw that there was a 87% of the participants fell asleep faster. So what that meant is basically when you do that, and for people aren't familiar, I'm sure everyone knows the Theragun, but just in case you're not, it's the percussive therapy device. So it gives you that vibration massage, right? Like a gun, a uh, massage gun. And what would happen is if you would do that for four minutes before bed, you would essentially put the body in a state of parasympathetic readiness. So when your head hit the pillow, if your mind and bo your, your body would still be active and your mind would be going and it would take you a little while to fall asleep, that, that from the time you put your head on the pillow to the time you fall asleep is called sleep latency. In the Biostrap Lab study, 87% of the participants had decreased sleep latency. They fell asleep faster. Right. So they went to market telling people, hey, you want to fall asleep faster? Use a Theragun. 
We have a rampant epidemic of sleeplessness in the world today, you know? And so I think a lot of people would be like, well, I'll use a Theragun if that's going to help me fall asleep faster. Right. Yeah. And BioLite, right. You, you did, uh, you know, I was, we met, we talked about it. We did the study and, uh, you know, I thought it was fascinating actually what happened in the BioLite study, because a lot of the red light therapy research has always been, you know, has not, I don't think to my knowledge, I don't think a single commercial red light company has done anything but point at the research. I don't think anybody, I think BioLite was the first one to actually do the research for themselves on their specific device. So I was really uh, proud of you for taking that step and for BioLite for taking that step. And uh, the results were maybe not what, and again, like good science, not exactly what we expected, but very interesting. And in fact, I think the results are almost suggestive of the need for a lot more research, which unfortunately in science, that's what always happens when you do an early study. Like, like not like literally if you go and you read most of the study uh, research uh, publications, they usually end with some statement to the effect of this may indicate the need to do further research to validate this hypothesis, right? And that's that's how science works. But just for to, because I, I think you're going to do another podcast on this. I don't want to steal too much of the thunder, but do you want me to talk about the biolite uh, outcomes? Yeah, go for it. Because um, as people know, Kevin will be on for part two of this podcast, and he'll go much deeper into the specifics of the of the study. But Elias, go ahead and just kind of speak your thoughts. So what I thought was really fascinating is I think, you know, there's always a relationship between like acute and chronic response, right? So chronic is long-term over long periods of time. What is the response? And what I thought, thought was fascinating is how, how strong the acute response was that people would have an immediate reaction, right? To things like blood flow and parasympathetic activation. So the red light therapy is definitely having an impact on people in the immediate moment. But I think what we need to, and the reason we need more research is we need to understand better how is that acute response impacting chronic change over time. So I think we would need to do very, really, if if the red light therapy industry really wanted to understand this, you know, we would need to get a large sample size of people and follow them for a pretty good chunk of time, do more like a clinical trial would be fascinating to do with these red light therapy panels, but there's obviously something happening, but it, it, it might be personalized. It might be more difficult to quantify longer term, but the acute effects were so strong. I think the HRV change was like a, over 100%. I mean, that's statistically significant. It's very statistically significant. I think it was 122% change in uh, acute HRV post-treatment. Yeah, I was pretty surprised about the parasympathetic response because I guess I haven't read too much about that specifically because I'm always reading about specific health conditions right? and, you know, it's anti-inflammatory, improves your circulation and mitochondrial health. Honestly, I don't know if there's any that I read specifically about it improving your parasympathetic response and to your point, so acutely or so, you know, spontaneously. So it is pretty interesting. And again, we'll have Kevin go into more of the details, but I mean, I like to use my red light before bed. Yeah. Personally, I do. I, I find it very um, parasympathetic. I find it activating at a parasympathetic level for sure. It's somewhat par- it's somewhat paradoxical in the sense that it's it's improving the efficiency and functioning of your mitochondria, which produces energy. So you think you'd be getting energized, which some people do. You get energized by 
again, it's N equals one. What are you dealing with? What are you trying to right. come back from? But some people get energized. But to your point, you like it because it calms you down. And this study shows that it does activate your parasympathetic system. Here's the thing, though. Here's what we would have to do to really understand this is how much of that has to do with timing, mm -hmm. right? And the individual focus, right? So if I was saying using red light therapy is more of an activation pre-workout, and so I did it pre-workout, would it at, at that time of day, whenever my workout time was, right? Because we would have to, again, remove a lot of confounding factors here. But let's say I did... Let's say the requirement of the study was do red light therapy pre-workout. Would we see the same? Would we see something different? Right. So I know for me, I like to do it at night before bed. I also feel like, and again, I don't, maybe you know some of the science of this, but I actually feel like before bed, the red light on my eyes feels better at when it's darker out, obviously. Right. So I just like doing it in the in the dark at night. I don't necessarily feel inspired to do red light therapy first thing in the morning. You know what I mean? In the same way. So that's just the timing thing that I wonder. So I, this is a lot of, Point, yeah. and this is the thing about science as well. There's so many different things that can influence the outcome of a study. It's hard to do them well. And uh, this is why uh, a lot of people accuse studies of bias, right? Because depending on what they're going and looking for, how they're conducted, how they're designed, like all of this can really impact the outcome of the study. Right. And I agree with you. I use my red light in the morning and at night. I have one right next to my computer. So if I'm doing some stuff, emails or whatnot in the morning, I have it on uh, hitting me kind of at a, an oblique angle, but it does and at night, same thing, but it is very calming on the eyes. And as we know from research, it's the one wavelength of light that doesn't inhibit melatonin production and right. cortisol production. So it makes sense that it would at least not be stimulating if if not at least a little bit of calming as well. Well, I carry my little portable BioLite, the shine. So that whenever I travel, that's what I use as my in my hotel is my nightlight. Like I don't turn on any of the lights, right? I just I've use that. A lot of people. I just use that because then I don't even need to worry about it. And I have that as like my nightlight. So it's like I'm getting that positive light in my hotel room at night. And I'm not, you know. I uh, don't have to worry about anything else, you know, because I'm not going to turn on those blat those blasting blue lights that are in the hotel room. I've heard a lot of people that, that use their shine basically as flashlights at night. So turn <laughs> yeah. all the lights off, just use the red, which is smart. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because because it's so portable and it's it's light and portable. So yeah, you could just use it. I mean, my house is already looks like a submarine. It's already everything at night is red. So I have no blue light on at night anyway. But so I only need it when I travel because my house is already optimized for red light awesome well elias you know i appreciate your knowledge and and, and uh dropping in with us to to let us know really what to look out for especially in the biohacking world um i appreciate what you're doing as far as being the trailblazer and really pushing for companies and products to get validated and just kind of prove what they're doing and that it's not a snake oil pitch but with that being said especially since you're so entrenched in the biohacking world i'd be curious to hear from you are there any new up and coming biohacks you're especially excited about or any new ones that you're currently using that you'd like to share? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess uh, whenever I'm asked this, I always like to just state first, because uh, again, I've been, uh, it, it's been an ongoing challenge when I get interviewed around biohacking is that people come back from what I say and say, well, all that stuff's too expensive. I can't use it. So, or I can't afford it. So I just want to know, first off, all my top biohacks are absolutely free. 
get up with the sunrise, get sun exposure on your skin. Even if you're in a cold climate, all the better. Get your cold exposure and your sun exposure in at the same time. Uh, get your feet on the earth, do grounding, get connected, do some type of mindfulness practice. Even if you're not a meditator, you know you can find ways to, to do mindful eating, mindful dishwashing. If you want, get a brain tap. It's perfect device for non-meditators that puts that helps you meditate you know so there's there, there are different ways to do these things and then one thing i just want to mention that has become one of my most important uh, uh biohacks these days is because we're so much in this zoom alternate metaverse reality is just reminding people get away from your technology get off of your couch get away from your computer stand up do 10 push-ups and 10 air squats before you get on your next Zoom call. If you can do 20, do 20. Like, don't, I don't care if you don't have a home gym. 10 push-ups and 10 air squats you can do anytime. Just jump off your between Zoom calls and go do it. You're good. Uh, I just like to remind people of that. And then in terms of what's on the horizon, there's so much that's coming out there. So there is a company that I am um, starting to do some consulting work with. And I guess what I'm starting to see now for those who are not in the know, the word anti-aging is out of vogue. So don't use the word anti-aging. It's now longevity, right? So so because anti-aging sounds like we're afraid of death, right? Which we're not. We're trying to increase health span, right? Not just lifespan. I think even the idea of increasing lifespan, there's a bunch of these guys out there saying, I'm going to live to 200 or 150. I think the vast majority of people in the space are not. That's not what they're proposing. They're proposing to increase the amount of time human beings stay in a healthy state. Because what happens, for those of you probably know, you know, once you hit about 40, some degree, certain things in your 30s, even if you look at the curves, you know, you have a lot of these health curves where all of these things, all of the, the functioning downhill. goes downhill. That's why they call it middle age. It's all downhill from here. So, um, so there's now a lot of products that are coming out there that are health span based products, things in peptide therapy, uh, exosome therapy. And these things are right now very expensive, but just like the early red light devices were prohibitively expensive. You only saw them in Medispas, right? Or very high-end clinics. And now I can go on BioLite's web shop and I can buy a BioLite for my home. So these things will come down in price pretty quickly there's different types of metabolic supplements that are coming out. Uh, one of the companies I'm, I'm working with is uh, they have a supplement called Mito Reserve Timeline Nutrition. Technically, it's a postbiotic, uh, but it's a very specific compound that it's hard for the body to access and make. Even if you do access it, the highest concentration is in pomegranates. And even if you would eat enough pomegranates to get it, only 30% of the population has the right microbiome to convert this, the pomegranates, into the actual metabolic compound that increases mitophagy. Hmm. So for those of you not familiar, mitophagy is the, the body's system of recycling mitochondria. And so the mitoreserve supplement, I shouldn't use the word supplement. I'm, if you're listening, I'm sorry I said supplement, but if they don't like that term, but it, it falls within that space in some ways, but it's really more of a postbiotic or a metabolite. So the metabolite, they can give it directly to the body. And essentially you could be in your fifties and sixties 
And you would have probably very little chance of getting this into your body in any way. And it's actually bioavailable now. You can take the pure supplement, ingest it, and immediately is impacting mitophagy in your body in a way that was impossible without it. So there's things like that that are coming on the market is we have a better understanding of or new understandings of our, our, our cellular systems. So I guess in short answer, and that was a very convoluted answer, but I guess the, the bot, next stage of biohacking that's of most interest to me now is cellular personalized medicine, which means that I, you come into the clinic with a functional medicine doctor, Mike, you do, they do all the profile on you. And then they start to look at, well, based on all of these parameters, these are the different cellular functions that we could optimize in your body. And here's the protocol to do that. And so now you could be in your 40s, 50s, 60s, but your cells are performing as if you were in your 20s and 30s. And that is becoming possible right now. So this is beyond stem cells. This, Like you said, exosomes, peptides, and beyond. And beyond. Stem cells are part of it, but they're one of the types of therapies that are becoming popular, becoming possible. I was talking to somebody where they're looking at ways to use that lipid stem cell therapy and, and scale it, right? Because right now it's quite expensive. So, you know, who's going to get access to it? Well, only a small elite group. But now, like I said, I think we're going to see a rapid, I think we're in the next 10 years, we're going to see some rapid changes in this type of cellular medicine. Uh, and hopefully it becomes a lot more accessible as well. Right. Yeah. To your point, individuality, personalized medicine, is there going to be some point in time where that's almost all inside a wearable? Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that's what we're human. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's where this whole thing will eventually go. Like I said, if you have uh, molecular sensing wearables, they could probably, we could probably go so far as saying, Oh, here's the time you're miss You're short on this. You know, like literally what happened is your wearable would send a message to the cloud and you would get sent the cellular protocol right. in real time is your, physiological changes are happening. So like, oh, I'm down on this this week. Oh, here's the here's the exact protocol to optimize that. Here's the here's your times you could be working out and doing things. And I know some people talk about this and it does sound to some degree a little dystopian, you know, to some degree like it's like a little too managed, but I think at the same time, I mean, I mean if it's just like when you work out and giving you a couple things that you can take as a pill or whatever it's not that invasive you still can be a human being living a human life you know it's not that extreme uh and i think all of us you know given the chance to have more energy better sleep uh function better to to be of service to the world and to our family and loved ones it's it's not that invasive i don't think yeah and to your point it's all about you know a longer health span live longer, but more importantly, live a healthier length of life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got, when I've been interviewed by the mainstream journalists, they often ask me like, you know, why are you a biohacker? You're afraid of getting old and dying. And it's be like, no, I'm not afraid at all. I, I, I have two grandparents on both sides of my family to 92. So I figure I have good enough genes to make it to 92. Right. So, you know, I, I'm not trying to live beyond that, but I don't want to be, 70 and falling apart for 22 years. You know what I mean? Yep. That's all. Yep. That that's that's what I'm I'm working to uh make sure that is a part of my life. And it's funny you mentioned I think uh 10 years from now things will be more cheaper, the technology is going to be 
you know, it's only exponentially getting more advanced in. I took part in RadFest two years in a row, which is an anti-aging right. conference. And I think it was the first year it was in Vegas. And the speaker was Ray Kurzweil. Yes. So he presented yeah. on that. Basically, uh, the whole theme of of his talk and really of that RadFest, and that was in 2019, was because most of the people that were there were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It wasn't young people like me and you, but, um, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm there, buddy. I'm there. I'm just trying to stay young. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, they kept repeating you, as long as you can live until 2030, you're going to be able to prolong your life significantly because 2030 is like this, this mark in time of technology and advancements. And, um, like Ray Kurzweil was alluding to things are only getting exponentially faster and quicker and advancing yeah. it. 2030 is kind of the year where if you can make it to there, and again, people are older. So it's like, well, if these people can live another 11 years, then they're going to be doing pretty well because there's going to be so many advancements, whether it's at the cellular level or technology or what have you, that uh, your chances of longevity and increased health span are going to be very significant. So we're in a crazy time. Like you alluded to, the biohacking industry is and the longevity industry is is really blowing up and becoming more popular. So it, it'll be interesting to to follow and track and be a part of. Well, I think the pandemic has made people realize two things. And you know, maybe I know we're wrapping up, so maybe this is you know something for all of us to uh, take with us. Is you know, it made us realize that um, really our health and the health of our loved ones is probably the most valuable thing in the world. There really isn't anything. If you don't have that, you have nothing, right? And that's why people are quitting their jobs because people are saying, I'd rather be healthy and happy and have time with people that I love than, than be in that job anymore. I'm just burnt. I mean, you know, 20 million Americans quit since April of this year. So, so we're undergoing, people do not understand currently the ramifications of the pandemic psychologically. We have undergone a collective traumatic pattern interrupt and it's going to change human behavior for years and years to come and one of the things we realize is now health is fundamental to everything so people are going to start prioritizing that and coming with that is going to be a lot of social change biohacking is going to explode uh, as i said people are changing careers people are are doing things that restructure their lives. People have moved all over the world, all over the country. You know, people have changed where they live uh, based on what's happening. So I don't think people realize how much things have changed. So we're not going back to where we were before, but I don't think it has to be a bad thing. I think we were talking about this like new normal that sounds very, again, dystopian. I actually think we're in a good place in a way that reprioritize certain things. And, and that could be a good thing for all of us. I mean, especially I guess maybe because I've always been passionate about health, I'm happy to see other people prioritizing health more. And hopefully we can all take that together and uh, become a healthier world, mentally, physically, spiritually, and always. Yep. The the pandemic was a wake-up call in a lot of ways. And like you said, reprioritizing, actually uh, <laughs> not taking time with one another for granted uh, yeah. the, the past year that we were we're in isolation, more or less. So, oh yeah, I miss my live events. I'm so excited to see them happening again. I'm an event producer, so I'm, I hope to see whoever uh, is listening to this. I hope to see you in person at a live event sometime because uh, you know, it'd be great to connect and you know, seeing people in real life. Still, there's nothing that replaces that. 
100%. Elias, go ahead and tell people where they can learn more about you and more from you. Sure. Um, I guess my main social platform these days is LinkedIn. So I'm very fortunate. If you just look me up by name, you can find everything about me. Uh, I only, I'm the only person in the world with that exact spelling of that name that I, that is, I guess, maybe easy to find. So E-L-I-A-S-A-R-J-A-N.com is my personal website, which is not that great right now. I'll probably be building that up. My consulting firm is Business Brain. Uh, so businessbraininc.com is where uh, you will find my uh, consulting work for the wellness and fitness and uh, biotech companies that I work with. Um, and then again, uh, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am also on Instagram as well uh, under my name where uh, you may see some of the live events that I'm producing and I hope to meet you in person and uh, hope to see you, Mike, at one of our events, get to BioLite out there. Uh, get oh, people no into we'll that red light therapy. Yes, sir. We'll make it happen for sure. Well, Elias, again, appreciate your time, man. It's always a pleasure when you know we get to talk about stuff. And I know I did, along with the audience, learned a lot about the biohacking world from a much different perspective. Because typically when I have people on, it's talking about you know all the gizmos and, and uh, the cool stuff that people are doing. But you brought a, kind of a little sobering aspect to the industry as far as it really needing to, um, while it's exciting, it does need to have some some validation and a little more critical clean. thinking. I would say, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. especially from the this consumer is... part, sure. So it's it's exciting to see that. And again, appreciate your time. Yeah. And I appreciate you, Mike. I mean, doing yeah. your work to educate people so that they have the opportunity to practice critical thinking, and then also congratulate you to being one of the few, you know, biohacking company founders willing to to validate your product. I mean, that also takes. Uh, a certain amount of belief and commitment in yourself and your product that I don't see everybody have. So I want to salute right. you for that as well. And, uh, you know, fortunately the science proved out that, you know, the BioLite did have positive effects that were measurable. And, you know, so people, I, but we knew that we knew red light was going to, was going to have an impact. It's just interesting how much more we still need to learn about the, all these technologies. So, yeah, uh, you know, appreciate that. And, and again, folks, we're going to dig deeper into that uh, BioStrap lab study with BioLite in the part two of this, if this episode compilation. So uh, again, Elias, appreciate you. Thanks again. This was Elias Arjan and Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off another episode of the Red Light Report. You all have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolite.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.